Easily one of the best bands I ever saw live. I saw them three times. Fantastic. Shriek Back was pretty good too. From Hangover Country, this is Hell. Today, we've got more of your answers to this week's question from Hell. Where did you leave those damn vote totals? And apparently 62% of those damn vote totals were found, which is oddly just enough for the campaign that donated to the Obama and Clinton Connected Development Company behind the app that was used to tabulate the votes on caucus night, just enough to have that candidate who donated end up in first, at least for now, and able to reap the media and fundraising benefits, despite actually losing the popular vote, which makes this Hillary-linked story as ironic as it can possibly get. We'll also have listener feedback if there is any. I haven't checked for a while, but we, we're going to find out uh, what's going on in Mexico to find out exactly how the hopeful presidency of Andres Manuel Lope, Lopez Obrador is going. And we got some reminders for you about upcoming events that we're hosting, as well as, I already told you, some listener feedback. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show live stream podcasting host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex. Jerry, anything new by you, Alex? That's yeah, uh, mark- remarkable, the human uh, ability to overcome and uh, adapt to problems. I'm uh, totally not freaked out anymore by the fact that it smells like gas every time we come into this office. Oh, my God. I'm that, not scared anymore. I know. I'm ready to die. <laughs> that stove is driving me nuts. I don't know why that happens. I think it's the pilot getting blown out, don't you? Oh, I don't even care. <laughs> it's not I, enough. It, it, I'm just I'm I'm going to be worried when it doesn't smell like gas in here. That's the that's I'm going to be worried. This week's question from Hell again is: Where did you leave those damn vote totals? Where did you leave those damn vote totals? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio, or you can DM it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio or email us Chuck at This Is or Alex at This Is the person with the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell tote bag at just the right size to tote lost votes. Alex, do you have any more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah, we got a ton. Uh, Mark A.S. says, all the candidates receive a participation trophy. Good job, everyone. <laughs> uh, Sebastian M. says, I have them with me, but as I was walking over to report them, I realized I really had to go to the bathroom. I'm still confined to a bathroom stall. Curry nights can be oh geez can be rough <laughs> Sebastian uh, socialism for all says Juan Guaido has them uh, Luke H says Silicon Valley Joe F says my bad I accidentally mixed them into this raffle for a new toaster oven can you believe this thing bakes and toasts that's, that's amazing it's an amazing technology how are toasters not obsolete where did you leave the damn vote totals Brian M says in Pete Buttigieg's wine cave <laughs> Joe S says Area 51 where else would they be a ballot box <laughs> 
Uh, Ken M's. Oh, I got Ken M. Jessica B says Bloomberg snuck him in that dog's mouth. <laughs> Uh, Lisa B says, in the same basket as all the clean laundry I've yet to fold and put away that's been sitting here for a week. <laughs> Andrea J says, in, Andrea says, in your mama. Mm. So now you we've got two in your mama. <laughs> uh, where did you leave those vote totals? Samantha C says, in the lockbox with Mr. Gore. <laughs> Fabio L says, in mortgage-backed securities. Kurt E says, left in an Epstein's Lolita Express. And Benedict S says... In Schrodinger's box again. <laughs> that's pretty good. In Schrodinger's box, who said that? Uh, it was uh, Benjamin S. Again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell. There better be a cat in that box. At our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email me or Alex Chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. This week's winner gets a This Is Hell tote bag, handy for toting around all those vote totals you are keeping from us. Alex, have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest, and today's guest is author and historian Umberto Beck, who co-wrote the Descent Magazine article, Year One of AMLO's Mexico, when Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador failed in his run for president way back in 2006. He sparked a sense that things could actually, finally, possibly, probably, maybe change in Mexico. Sure, the seven consecutive decade political rule of the PRI had come to an end by the time AMLO had brought his message of change to Mexican politics, but the presidencies of Vicente Fox, Felipe Calderon, and most recently the return of the PRI under Enrique Peña Nieto have shown that Mexican politics so far this century have been more of the horrible same. But AMLO got his chance again, and in December 2018, he became president of Mexico with promises of rolling back all the corruption and waste and bringing about a new transformation to all of Mexico that will bring about the change the Mexican people have been hoping for, have been dreaming for, have been dying for, but never seem to actually achieve. AMLO's government promised to be about protecting those who are the most vulnerable and the end of coddling the elite who dominate Mexico and have for quite some time. AMLO's was the hope and change that Mexico had been waiting for, but as Mexico's neighbors to the north know, promising hope and change and delivering it are two very, very different things. We'll find out how the first year of AMLO's presidency is going when we speak with Humberto, who is professor at the Center for International Studies at El Colegio de Mexico in Mexico City. Humberto is author of last year's The Moment of Rupture, Historical Consciousness in Interwar German Thought. Follow Humberto on Twitter at Umberto Beck, B-E-C-K. I probably should have watched the State of the Union address last night. So I could make some clever comments, give some smart commentary about it on the show this morning. But instead, I watched a show on Olmec archaeology, and I would much rather literally watch the discovery of ancient heads buried in sand than listen to ancient heads tell me their skewed view of reality, defining the State of the Union as whatever the campaign speechwriter assures them it is. I did tune into the speech a couple of times, long enough to realize it was nothing more than a monologue seemingly written by the white supremacist and Trump advisor Stephen Miller, whose entire meaning of life is to be a troll, provoking thin-skinned liberals into near-fainting spells. And apparently it worked as Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, standing directly behind the president, demonstrably tore up her copy of the 
speech as soon as it ended, which is probably exactly what trolls like Miller and Trump and the entire trolling Republican Party and their cohorts at Fox News really wanted. Plus, his act was seen as disrespectful by Trump supporters and probably gave them yet another reason to go vote in November and tune into Fox last night, even if they haven't tuned in for a while. You'd think Democrats might find some space in the right and Republicans defining who they are by trolling. The Dems could take advantage of that strategy and turn it against the GOP. But that's not today's Democratic leadership. That would take political imagination. And all the party leaders seem to want to do is focus on turning a few Trump voters Democrat. And the best way they figured out how to do that is just be Republicans. I'm sorry for even bringing the damn thing up. The State of the Union, like the Iowa caucus before it, like the Super Bowl the day before, like today's vote on impeachment, it's nothing but hype. Media hype. None of this matters. Despite every one of these events seeming to be the most important events in human history, according to the media at this moment, in less than a year, you'll probably have forgotten who won the Super Bowl. That is, if you ever cared in the first place. In a few days, Pete Buttigieg may no longer be the leader in the Iowa caucus. And if he is, that won't matter by the end of the month, as Mayor Pete will not be the Democratic Party nominee for president. Unless, of course, Mayor Pete really is the CIA super spy. I think he is. And today, we'll be quoting... Trump's speech, forgetting it completely as if we have already forgotten last year's speech and every previous State of the Union and the impeachment of Trump will be but another unfulfilled promise by a party that lost its way decades ago when it turned its back on workers, immigrants, the poor women, and the most vulnerable. Don't fall for the provocations, the trolling. That's all the right really has. It is their raison d'etre because it is their greatest weakness. The right is easily provoked. They are the original snowflakes. Abolitionists called those who wanted uh, slavery snowflakes because any time their white privilege and supremacy was challenged, they screamed and cried and wailed. The right is easily provoked. It's just that when they are, they're so offended. They're so offended that they are even able to convince liberals they should be offended too. That there's no reason to be mean and it does not become liberals who will agree. Play nice and go back to being easily provoked as they stumble down a high road of polite and bullied indifference. Don't believe the hype. Don't fall for the trolling and instead troll back. Remember, the right is very, very easy to offend. If you are willing to put up with suffering liberals who insist you not be rude and be civil, which is why it's looking a lot more like four more years of Donald Trump. And this is hell. We'll get to listener feedback in a little bit because we have a great letter from one of our listeners, Justin, and uh, you have got to hear it. It has everything to do with our interview on Monday's show about uh, the planetary mine. So uh, we'll be talking about that in just a little bit. Should I get to listener feedback, Alex, or should, I, should we go to our guest? Uh, I got him, Professor Beck on the line now. Okay, let's go, to, let's go to our guest then. Coming up on This Is Hell, one year in exactly how are all our hopes for the presidency of Mexico's Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador going so far? And more of your answers to this week's question from hell. And as I was saying, a really incredible 
letter from a listener, email from a listener, Justin, that you have got to hear. It's about our conversation with Martin Arboleda from uh, Monday about his book, Planetary Mind, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism. We have an email from an eyewitness to the planetary mind, and we will be reading that to you in just a bit. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show, Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has been president of Mexico for a little over a year now, elected on promises of hope and change to Mexico that voters have been demanding for years. So how has AMLO's first year gone? Here to help us figure that out is historian Umberto Beck, co-author of the Descent magazine article, Year One of AMLO's Mexico, a piece that he wrote with Carlos Bravo Regidor and Patrick Iber. Umberto is professor at the Center for International Studies at El Colegio de Mexico in Mexico City and author of the 2019 book, The Moment of Rupture, Historical Consciousness in Interwar German Thought. Welcome to This is Hell, Umberto. Oh, thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for having me. This is a fantastic article, and you can follow Umberto on Twitter at Umberto Beck. Umberto, are you still editor over at Horizontal.mx? No, not anymore. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that of that on the bio because I didn't want to keep repeating that, but it's a fantastic publication anyway that you were associated with in the past. You write on a sunny morning last May on the grounds of Los Pinos, the old presidential residence now open to the public. Mexican citizens strolled past a line of cars, trucks, and armored vehicles. Now, Los Pinos was the official residence and office of the president of Mexico from 1934 to 2018, but when campaigning for the presidency in 2018, AMLO promised he would not live in Los Pinos if elected and would open Los Pinos to the public. AMLO won, and on the day of his inauguration, December 1st, 2018, the president's offices were moved back to the National Palace. AMLO instead lives in his own home in Mexico City. What was the meaning of the symbolism to the Mexican people? Because well, I'm trying to determine the mood, the feeling Mexicans, or at least his supporters, had on inauguration day when the former presidential residence was open to the people. Well, the meaning of that gesture was really powerful at the time because, you know, Los Pinos, you know, as you mentioned, was the residential presidents for decades. And it had become a symbol of the, let's say, isolation of presidential power in Mexico. The idea that Mexican presidents were working just for themselves and for an economic elite. And so AMLO transforming Los Pinos, the former residential presidents, into some kind of public cultural park was a really powerful symbol of what he wanted to change in the way in which the Mexican state and the Mexican Mexican politics in general connects with the Mexican people. So now to open Los Pinos so that people could see how presidents lived, how presidents, uh, you know, had their everyday lives was really a change. Uh, this goes together with another very powerful symbol that uh, is that AMLO, uh, how, that's how we call Andres Manuel López Obrador in Mexico for short, uh, is starting flying uh, in commercial flights. Uh, he didn't want to use any kind of official uh, vehicle or official plane. He wanted to fly couch like a regular citizen. That was a very powerful symbol, too. There have been some security concerns about what might happen if someone would like to make harm to him. But in general, that is also a very powerful symbol of how he wants to make uh, the government, as he calls it, more Republican and austere. 
So uh, you also write that AMLO's decision to auction luxury vehicles owned by the government and open the presidential residence to the public are Republican austerity in practice. What do mm -hmm. you mean by Republican austerity? Well, so uh, the project of AMLO for Mexico is a left-wing project because uh, it has put uh, inequality at the center of its concerns, but at the same time it has very, some very particular traits. One of these traits is his concern with austerity, which is a little bit paradoxical, at least in rhetorical terms, because austerity were used to uh, connect it with more, a more uh, neoliberal discourse. However, AMLO, what he wants to do, or that at least is his intention, is to transform the meaning of austerity in the Mexican circumstance or in the Mexican situation. Because here he austerity is not about social spending, it's not about cutting uh, social spending in social programs, it's about cutting uh, the very high expenses of bureaucracy in Mexico. So he repeats all the time this motto that he says that there cannot be a rich government with a poor people. And he says that for the last decades, the Mexican government has been a rich government with extremely high salaries for the ministries and for the high functionaries with the poor people. Uh, so uh, this is the meaning of austerity for him. He wants to cut spending in uh, government bureaucracy. He wants to reallocate that uh, budget changes in social spending and in that way to contribute to a um, more equal society. So how much of a swipe or a slap in the face is opening the Mexican, uh, the former uh, presidential uh, residence of uh, the Mexican president, how much is that a slap in the face to the past elites who have been ruling uh, Mexican government? Because you write uh, proceeds were de destined for some of the country's poorest municipalities from these auctions of these vehicles. Even the government agency responsible for the auction would have a new name, the Institute for Returning to the people what was stolen. This seems to be then mm -hmm. very much a, not even an implication, but an admission by AMLO's government that previous governments had been stealing mm -hmm. from the people of Mexico. So how mm -hmm. much is all of this an attack, a slap in the face of the past elites, of the past governments? How much is his presidency defined by his attacks on the, his predecessors? Well, so far, you know, uh, one of the weaknesses of the new government in that area has been that many of the gestures uh, in that direction have remained in that, in gestures. They have been powerfully symbolic, but we haven't seen yet a real deep change in the structure of how Mexican politics work. So there have been, uh, you know, accusations against some very prominent ex-former uh, politicians of previous regimes. but. In comparison with the number of politicians that have been involved with uh, corruption in the last decades, this is a very small number. So I think this is promising. There are some signs of real change, but the real change hasn't arrived yet. What has arrived yet is the change in discourse. So this is really a slap in the face uh, in terms of uh, AMLO saying that he's entirely different from the previous politicians. So he says that uh, he's going to change uh, radically and drastically the way in which corruption works in Mexican politics because he himself is 
personally honorable, that he has never uh, entered into corruption. I think that is true. Uh, however, he seems to have sometimes even some kind of magic belief in that this personal uh, uh, engagement of his is going to somehow uh, transmit automatically to all the political system. And but, but that is not enough. So we need some deeper structural changes in that area. So I would say that, yeah, it's a lap in the face in terms of discourse, but the actual changes are coming slowly. So is this a process of a cult of personality? Is he trying to uh, have a cult of personality? And what do you think are the shortcomings politically of trying to attain mm -hmm. a cult of personality? Oh, well, so I wouldn't say he's trying to uh, induce some kind of cult of personality, but definitely the personal leadership of, of AMLO is the central aspect of his project. So uh, that 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 it is impossible to deny. He is the figure that has uh, united together uh, a very strange coalition of very different politicians from very different political strands, from very different, very different political parties. And the only thing they have in common is that they support AMLO. So of course, this personal element is very powerful. It's not yet definitely a cult of personality, but the weaknesses of this approach to politics, I think, have started to manifest themselves. For example, AMLO's party, that is called Morena, which means something like a national regeneration movement, so right now it's in a very deep crisis because once AMLO is in power, once AMLO is not the direct leader of the movement and of the party, uh, the party doesn't seem to hold itself together. So everything that that uh, puts it together is AMLO himself. So that creates very deep problems in terms of the perspective of what's going to happen next after AMLO is done with his presidential term. Uh, so I don't think I don't think it is sure that there is going to be a continuity in the good aspects of his government. So for example, this fight against corruption, this fight against inequality, given the lack of institutionalization of his project, given the fact that it's entirely centered on his person, uh, the prospects of uh, a future continuation of the deep reforms that Mexico needs are, I think, in, in danger. Uh, so there has been so much, a lot of talk about whether AMLO is not a populist. Uh, I think he is, both in a good and in a bad sense. Uh, in a bad sense, he's a populist in the sense that uh, he believes that uh, he has to have some kind of personal direct connection with the people that is not mediated or is not very much mediated by institutions. So in that sense, he's a populist. And that has, of course, some possible uh, negative consequences. It's not what is happening right now, but it might happen, uh, you know, this risks of authoritarian concentration of power and so on. You know, that might happen, it's not happening, but it's a possibility. But he's also populist in a good sense, because he really wants to uh, stress the fact that Mexican politics and Mexican elites uh, have been uh, have privileged their interests against the majority of the Mexican population. I think that is true. And I think his diagnosis is correct. Uh, at the same time, he's not a populist in the Bolivarian sense. So he's something he's something different. Sorry, you write uh, this. Uh, the sale was designed to demonstrate some of the new president's uh, political ambitions. Few doubt uh, AMLO's determination to transform his country even before taking office. AMLO had already envisioned his term in historic dimensions, labeling, labeling it the fourth transformation of Mexico, yeah. following independence from Spain, the liberal reforma, and the Mexican Revolution. What? would that fourth transformation look like? Did voters vote for AMLO because they wanted something as revolutionary to happen?
happened in liberal uh, in Mexico as had happened in the past three times. To what extent is that even possible today in Mexico? Is Mexico ready? Are, uh, did Mexico vote for revolution? I think Mexico, or at least a large extent of the Mexican population, voted for some kind of democratic Pacific revolution. Uh, this is what AMLO offers, to uh, enact a transformation of the country as radical as the one that had happened with the independent movement or the Mexican revolution, but without violence. So I think that the the state, well, the situation of Mexico is so radical, the problems are so deep and so profound and so drastic that we definitely need some kind of radical change, some kind of revolution. Uh, however, uh, there are some very clear limits to his project of radical transformation. And I think that one of these main uh, limits is that he wants to change the political economy of Mexico just uh, uh, doing this kind of budget reallocations through Republican austerity. So he wants to cut the expenses of the bureaucracy and to reallocate that money to social programs. But he has been very timid, let's say, uh, about doing deep changes, for example, a real a really progressive tax reform. So he has almost never talked about that. So, and he has talked about that so little that it that it almost amounts to kind of silence about that. But without a tax reform that is really progressive, that really transformed the way in which the, the Mexican political economy works, what he offers is not going to happen. Uh, there is another issue of concern that is, of course, the uh, topic of uh, unsafety and insecurity and violence and injustice. So Mexico has reached in the last, let's say, 10, 15 years, a point of crisis. So there are many parts of the country that are not really controlled or not entirely controlled by the Mexican government, uh, that where sovereignty, let's say, is shared uh, by the government with criminal groups or is, uh, you know, uh, exerted altogether by criminal groups. Uh, the rate of impunity for crimes in Mexico is almost 100 uh, percent. And if we don't change that. Even if we have, a, a, let's say, a little bit more egalitarian society, if we don't change that, if we don't change that structural injustice that is at the base of Mexican society, I think that anything resembling a fourth transformation is not going to happen. So are those limits then, are they self-imposed by AMLO himself, or are they uh, limits that are imposed on him by others, by the system, by the political culture in Mexico? Because here in the United States, so many people thought that Barack Obama was going to bring hope and change. Yeah. And when he did not bring about the amount of hope and change that many had displaced onto him from their own hopes and change, uh, they, saw, they would rationalize it as, look, Barack Obama went to Washington, D.C. He tried to get things done, but the system just wouldn't let him get things done. It, are these limits self-imposed on AMLO, or are these limits to what he, how he can transform Mexico imposed on him by the political culture of Mexico? Well, here I think we can distinguish between two kinds of limits. One, one kind is self-imposed limits, so limits that he has chosen to, to put on himself because of his project, and the other kind are limits that are structural because of the nature of Mexican policy and society. Uh, in the first area, I think that precisely because he's so concerned about popular approval, and so far he has kept a very high popular approval of, of about almost 70% of the population is happy with, with AMLO, so he has uh, avoided engaging in some of the real changes that, that 
that Mexico would need. For example, during his campaign, he had talked a little bit about some very innovative measures to improve injustice, uh, the situation of injustice in Mexico. He had talked about selective amnesties to many people who have been involved in some way or another with drug trafficking, but not directly with violence. So he, he is not talking about, you know, pardoning uh, murderers, but he's talking about pardoning people who have, for example, worked in agriculture, somehow related to marijuana and so on. So I think something like that is needed, because otherwise the Mexican uh, justice system is, is not going to be able to pr process all all, all, all those cases. Uh, at the same time, he talked a little bit about drug legalization. I think that's also a very important issue. Uh, but once he got into power, he dropped all that. He entirely forgot about that, and he began to adopt, uh, uh, let's say, a strategy that is very similar to the one that was uh, practiced by the previous presidents, like Felipe Calderón and Enrique Peña Nieto. He created this new core called the National Guard, uh, that is a hybrid of police and army that wants to, you know, fight violence, uh, but that in many ways just repeats the same logic of the past. Uh, so that is a self-imposed uh, limit. Uh, also, he wants to avoid drug legalization or, or selective amnesties because he, I think he perceives now that this is going to cost him a lot of popularity in, in some sectors. So he dropped that, even though that is important. Uh, at the same time, there are the structural limits. Uh, that is the very large tradition of corruption and, let's say, collusion between political and economic power that uh, ha have characterized Mexico in the in the in the modern time. So, even though he talks about separating political and economic power, uh, doing some kind of uh, let's say uh, uh, purification. Sometimes he uses that word of political power. In fact, what he's doing is to try to work with the very ultra-rich people in Mexico uh, in symbolic terms or getting money from them to finance new projects. So he created these boards of uh, businessmen of Mexico, uh, among which are some of the richest men on earth, uh, to contribute to the government. So here we have some kind of... Uh, a kind of contradiction with his discourse that might have been imposed by the structural reality of Mexican economy. You mentioned earlier the potential for criminal gangs' influence on government. Can AMLO or any political leader have any chance at having any kind of reform in Mexico when you have potential for criminal gang influence on the government? I think he definitely has a chance of real reform in Mexico in terms of justice and, and security. Uh, however, the signs, the, the recent signs in that area are not very encouraging. You know, in about 10 years ago, began in Mexico a process of penal reform and of justice reform to change the way in which the justice system works, to make it a little bit more transparent, to make it a little bit more open, to make it a little bit less prone to corruption. But so far, the resistance on the part of judges, ministries, police, courts, has been very strong. Uh, and so, of course, that has created new problems. But the reaction of the AMLO government so far or what seems to be the reaction is to uh, create some kind of counter reform to that penal reform that will reintroduce some of the some of the worst aspects of the previous regime. So instead of trying to work uh, towards a consolidation of the new penal and fiscal, uh, uh, sorry, and justice regime, he wants to go back so that uh, the power of the central government is strengthened. So I think 
I think this is a, a, a worrying symptom of the way in which he's not entirely getting what he has to do. Uh, but, but he definitely has the power. He has the influence. He has the popularity. He has the democratic legitimacy. So in a, a way, he's the most democratic uh, president of the recent years because he won by a landslide vote. He has uh, the majority in, in the both uh, the, the cham- in the both chambers, the Senate and the representatives. Many uh, local governments support him, so he has a tremendous democratic legitimacy that he could mobilize to a deep transformation of the justice system. But instead of trying to improve the positive tendencies that are already there, he seems to want to stop them. In 2006, when AMLO ran for the presidency and failed, he said that the election was stolen from him by President Felipe Calderon, eventual President Felipe Calderon. How Mm. much was the 2018 voter referendum on his claim that he says the election was stolen from him despite never producing any evidence? Oh, well, I think that um, many people voted for him, not because of that, you know, because the people who believe that there was a a fraud in 2006 are, you know, his hardcore vote population. But he could win in 2018 because he could convince even an even larger population that he was the option for Mexico. And it was something that was not entirely related to the fraud of 2006. It was because he could present himself as the option that could really change, for example, uh, uh, inequality and corruption. Uh, However, well, I don't think that there was a fraud in 2006, but there were very strong and very deep irregularities. So I'm pretty sure there was, you know, federal money at the time from the from the other party that somehow contributed to the to the victory of Calderon. So even though there was not a, a direct fraud, there were irregularities that made that election, you know, questionable. Uh, but of course, he AMLO winning in 2018 in such a powerful way is somehow I wouldn't say a referendum on on the 2006 fraud. But it will be. It is. It was like some kind of public referendum on the meaning of of Mexico's transition to democracy, because uh, you know, in two thousand, in the year two thousand, Vicente Fox was the first uh, really democratically elected president in Mexico in modern times, uh, and so far we had had before AMLO three presidents, all of them from the right, and I think that AMLO winning in such a big way was a, uh, some kind of public referendum on the failure of those presidencies of the Mexican of the first part of the Mexican d- democracy and the and the will of the people showing itself in the direction of having a radical change in what democracy should entail and that should entail i think to a great extent economic inequality economic fairness and a deep fight against political corruption you mentioned a referendum on an airport that AMLO did not want to have constructed and how it was full mm-hmm. of irregularities. And you write in the weeks leading up to the vote, a bevy of legal challenges were soon brought against the decision to call the referendum. They gained steam until mid-October when AMLO's government decided to reclassify the project as a matter of national security to halt what he described mm-hmm. as legal sabotage. The courts obliged. The one magistrate who insisted on upholding the challenges, Jorge Arturo Camero Ocampo, was a immediately removed from the bench and accused of corruption by the president of the Supreme Court, Arturo Zaldivar Lelo de Larraia, a close ally of AMLO. Is AMLO then displaying the same kind of desire for a complete grip and control of power as the PRI had? Is AMLO using his majority position too, while not the exact same policies as the PRI, attempting to attain that kind of unchallenged power of the PRI? Because I started thinking, wonder, I wonder if that's just 
the path that Mexican politics mm -hmm. go to goes towards. It tries to have ultimate power. Well, there are some real concerns in that area. I think that we shouldn't dismiss them. So uh, one of the main uh, issues or critical issues with AMLO's first year has been that he really wants to concentrate power in himself. So I think that that would be, you know, the, the bad populist trait that he might have. So far, I think that trait hasn't been that uh, strong, so that, so that we should be really concerned about that. But we should take we should pay attention to that. Uh, he seems to be sometimes, for example, a little bit uninterested or disdainful of political, uh, social, independent movement. So he seems to be a little bit separated from social movements. He thinks that given that he has this powerful democratic legitimacy, uh, now whatever he does should be, you know, the right thing to do and the legitimate thing to do uh, in Mexico. So to a certain extent, that is true, because as I mentioned, he won uh, by a landslide victory. So he really has democratic legitimacy. And so there might be some really, some really deep changes he might enact that will have uh, democratic legitimacy. But at the same time, he seems to uh, confound or to uh, take that for some kind of, uh, let's say, paralysis of uh, independent society or independent social movements. He, he seems to believe that now that he won, uh, the validity or the legitimacy of independent, independent mobilization and critique are, are no longer true because he has the legitimacy. And I think that that is really worrying because there are many aspects of his government that should be criticized, that must be criticized by society. For example, he doesn't really care about ecological concerns. So that doesn't almost, that doesn't exist in his worldview. So in that area, he really needs to have the pressure on the part of uh, uh, critics and social movements because he really doesn't get that, uh, he really doesn't get how that works. He needs to get that pressure in order to introduce that aspect in his government. So I would say yes, there are some worrying trends, not so worrying yet, uh, but that's where the mobilization of civil society and independent social movements uh, should get into action. Let's get to those ecological concerns, too, because those are concerns that don't just stay within the borders of Mexico. We are speaking with intellectual history scholar Umberto Beck, co-author of the Descent magazine, year one, magazine article, Year One of AMLO's Mexico, which he co-wrote with Carlos Bravo Regidor and Patrick Iber. Umberto is professor at the Center for International Studies at El Colegio de Mexico in Mexico City. You write AMLO's signature projects, the airport at Santa Lucia, which is a military airport that would be built instead of the airport in Mexico City that he ran the referendum on, an oil mm -hmm. refinery at Dos Bocas, and a proposed train Maya that would make a mm -hmm. touristic loop around the Yucatan Peninsula's Mayan archaeological sites, all events nostalgia for Mexico's era of stabilizing development, the years of strong growth in the mid-20th century, but conditions mm -hmm. and priorities today aren't what they once were. Is AMLO trying to recreate a past idea that doesn't perfectly fit with today? Is this akin to simply taking the New Deal and having it as current policy in the United States? And does that policy for nostalgic past work politically? Is that popular among voters? Well, uh, in a way it is, uh, but it is extremely unpopular uh, among some very powerful social movements, such as the Zapatistas. Uh, AMLO in a way, is a 20th century politician. I think that is fair, fair to say. Uh, he has this 
idealized vision of one of the most successful, uh, let's say, periods of 20th century Mexican history, that is the stabilizing development moment, where Mexico could uh, have a very steady rate of growth with a you know, not very high, but decent uh, or, or reasonable uh, uh, equality. So he wants to recreate that. And he wants to recreate that by solving uh, a very real imbalance between regions in Mexico. The North is pretty much, it's much more developed than the South in part because it has somehow connected itself in an asymmetrical way, but it has connected itself to the American, to the US economy. In, and the South has been abandoned to a large extent. And so most of the poor people in Mexico are concentrated in that area. So he wants to address that imbalance, and he, was, he wants to address that imbalance, creating these, what, he, what they call it, mega projects or macro projects of, of, of development in, in the South. So, the diagnosis is to a certain extent correct. It is true that there is an economic imbalance and social imbalance between the North and the South, but the way in which he wants to correct this imbalance will probably create some very deep problems that in fact are connected to the new conditions of the 21st century, such as the new importance of uh, ecological concerns. So what he wants to create, for example, this Maya train or train Maya, that it would be some kind of uh, a very long, like 1,000 miles uh, railroad that would connect all the main uh, touristic destinations of the uh, Yucatan Peninsula, uh, will probably create jobs, will probably create some kind of economic fairness to a certain extent. But in order to happen, it has to cross through some uh, preserved areas of the jungle in, in the peninsula of Yucatan. So that would create a lot of problems because uh, AMLO is not taking into account that uh, there is this new dimension of political decisions that is the environment, that is global warming, that is the climate crisis. So he's really thinking in terms of Mexico as being some kind of closed unit that needs to think in terms of itself, in terms of, the, of the ecological uh, consequences. So he's really not taking into account that third, let's say, variable for political decisions beyond you know, fostering economic growth beyond fostering economic fairness, he has to take into account the variable of uh, the climate and, and the climate crisis. And yet he's not. And yet he's also <clears throat> focusing on possible fossil fuels and his oil industry to prop up the country economically. So yeah. are his policies then pretty much an offense to anybody who is trying to fight climate change? Probably yes. That is hard. That is hard to acknowledge and hard to say. But probably yes. Uh, so, to talk a little, to say something in favor of AMLO, we have to acknowledge that. Well, yeah, he's a 20th century politician, but it is also true that the problems of Mexico are are. 21st century problems, but also 20th century problems, and in a way there are 19th century problems. Some of the problems in Mexico are the same as in colonial times even. So in that sense, many of the things that AMLO says doesn't sound that, you know, that out of place. But if you take into account the larger picture, definitely yes. What he's proposing is very much against the concerns of uh, environmentalists and, and e ecological experts. Uh, so, for example, as I mentioned before, one of the main opponents to AMLO's projects uh, are the Zapatistas in Chiapas, because they're very much concerned about what will happen to these e ecological areas that are going to be somehow profanated by the Tren Maya. And how would that 
uh, make it more difficult for projects such as the Zapatistas, of uh, the project of autonomy, local autonomy, uh, to, to be able to happen. If we have these major mega projects in the south of Mexico, uh, connecting all the, the, the Maya areas. Uh, so definitely, yes. So AMLO is a, 21st, is a 20th century politician in the 21st century that I think hasn't acknowledged yet the importance of the 21st century new variables and problems. You write that Julia Carabias Lilo, one of the most respected ecologists in Mexico, has deemed the train Maya a model of anti-ecotourism, massive, high intensity, not respectful of the natural environment, without a social function and not involving local communities. For his part, AMLO has dismissed those who have raised concerns about the train, including academics, environmentalists and indigenous groups, as out of touch with the people. Is AMLO correct? Is he more in touch with the people when it comes to train Maya, more in touch with real Mexicans than an ecologist or an academic is? Because I don't want to underestimate his ability to deliver a message and to communicate with the Mexican people. Well, in a sense, but very limited way, yes, he's right. Because what many people want is, is jobs, uh, jobs that are well paid so that the economic fairness uh, uh, of Mexico gets improved. So that's an immediate concern that is really legitimate and that he really wants to address, I think, in a very honest way. Uh, but at the same time, you know, climate and the weather and ecological concerns are, in a sense, even even more radical and even more direct. But I think he hasn't taken into account that, that there, is a, there is a connection, a, a negative connection between the two, between, between his mega projects like the Maya train and uh, the, the pollution and the erosion and destruction of the natural environment. Uh, this is also applicable to another, let's say, flagship uh, project of his government, that is the construction of new refineries uh, for the treatment and the, the treatment of, of, of oil. He has insisted he was uh, in his campaign that he wants to turn Pemex, that is the national oil company, into the engine of of Mexican development and growth. So, of course, uh, in a way, he's right. In a way, it's true that Pemex has a lot of economic potential. Uh, in a way, it's true that it could create many new jobs, uh, and particularly it could uh, dynamize the southern part of the country that has been so so abandoned. But but again, he's talking like a 20th century politician. So oil uh, should be, you know, the energy consumption based on oil should be in way of uh, fading. It should be more of a transition phase into something else. But he doesn't seem to be really talking about that something else, that new that new period of, let's say, uh, clean energies or uh, more local-based development strategies that wouldn't be so dependent on gas and oil and fossil fuels. So that he says that he does it because he wants to, uh, let's say, guarantee the Mexican uh, energetic sovereignty, because he says that Mexico is very dependent on U.S. refineries. So he has to buy a, a, a gasoline from the U.S. So that that, put, that puts Mexico in a very unequal and unsafe position in terms of geopolitics. And of course, that's true. I think he's right on that level, on that dimension of the discussion. But the other dimension, the ecological dimension of the discussion, is as important or probably more important than the other one.
You write that public safety in Mexico has reached a desperate point. The number of crime-related murders is approaching a quarter of a million since 2006, with at least an additional 40,000 reported missing. The involvement yeah. of army forces and police work has resulted in serious human rights violations. During his campaign, AMLO promised a radical change in direction, including the gradual return of the military to its barracks, drug legalization, transitional justice, selective amnesties. He insisted that his policies to combat government corruption and economic inequality would lead to a decrease in crime rates. Fighting corruption, fighting waste, fighting inequality, these are the ways in which he's going to fight not only crime, but as mentioned throughout your article, how he'll restore trust in government. Can AMLO solve all of Mexico's problems simply by fighting corruption, waste, and inequality? Or is there something else AMLO may be missing? I think I think he he will probably improve some of those areas with the strategies that he's following. I don't want to say that they're entirely wrong, that they're entirely out of place with the Mexican situation. But if he wants to enact the fourth transformation of Mexico, as he has promised, he has to do something else. He has to do something more radical, more drastic. I would mention at least three areas of change, three or four. One would be a really progressive tax reform. Without that, he's not going to be able to change the political economy, the extremely unequal and unfair political economy of Mexico without the really progressive tax reform. Also, he has to consolidate a, a deep penal and uh, justice reform. Without that, uh, I think the overall situation of Mexico is not going to change. What he says that uh, with improvement of economic fairness, crime is going to fade away automatically, as in some kind of domino, I don't think that's going to change. He has to address the uh, violence and the injustice issues in its own way. So, for example, consolidating uh, this kind of uh, justice reforms. Uh, and the third element would be, of course, to introduce in a, in a serious way the ecological variable in all his decisions. He's not taking that into account almost uh, at all. So he seems to ignore it all the time. And the fourth would be that he really has to take into account uh, social mobilizations. He has to really open up his perspective to what other people that are not part of his party or part of his program have to say. So recently, for example, he really dismissed a very important protest of victims of violence that went to the Zócalo, that is the main square in Mexico City, where the National Palace is located. Uh, he really dismissed that. He didn't want to meet with the representatives of the victims. He, dis he says he didn't want to make a show out of that. But I think that was a wrong decision, because Mexico is really in the middle of something that could, could even be called a civil civilizational crisis in terms of violence. And, and something radical has to be done in that area, and he won't be able to succeed if he doesn't take into account civil society and independent social movements. Could any of, or all of, for that matter, uh, AMLO's shortcomings be chalked off to a lack of sovereignty that Mexico now has with integration with uh, through NAFTA and North American trade deals? Can we simply say that, you know, when it comes to the drug war, when it comes to immigration, all of his policies that people may not be happy with in Mexico are due to the fact that Mexico has lost its power to control itself through integration? Well. AMLO 
has a very ambivalent attitude in that respect. Because on the one hand, as I already mentioned, he has given a lot of importance to this project of energetic sovereignty, of energy sovereignty, so that Mexico is not so dependent on uh, getting gasoline from the United States and so on. Uh, but at the same time, in terms of international relations, what he has done amounts only to a strengthening of this asymmetric dependence of Mexico, of the Mexican economy on the U.S. economy. So, for example, last year in May, uh, Donald Trump made this uh, menace, this threat, that if Mexico didn't uh, stop the flow of Central American migrants through its territory, he would impose tariffs to, to Mexican goods. And Mexico uh, the Mexican government reacted right away, doing exactly what Trump wanted. And so now uh, the new National Guard that was supposed to, you know, combat violence and crime, organized crime and, and gangs in Mexico has been not all of it, but to a great extent mobilized to stop the flow of migrants in order to do what Trump wanted Mexico to do. So in that sense, for example, AMLO has not uh, uh, has not really combated the the asymmetry of 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 Mexico in respect to the U.S., but has consolidated it. We have been speaking with intellectual history scholar, historian Umberto Beck, co-author of the Descent Magazine article, Year One of AMLO's Mexico. Umberto is professor at the Center for International Studies at El Colegio de Mexico in Mexico City. Umberto is author of the 2019 book, The Moment of Rupture, Historical Consciousness in Interwar German Thought. And you can follow Umberto on Twitter at Umberto Beck. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, Umberto, our final question for you mm -hmm. is our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our yeah. audience might hate your response. You write, Javier Cecilia, poet and leader of the Victims Movement for Peace with Justice and Dignity, whose son was killed in 2011, has given voice to the concerns of many. Javier said in November, we don't want the fourth transformation to fail, nor are we its enemies. If it fails, there is nothing. Is AMLO the last resort and the only hope for Mexico for reform? And what happens if he fails? I have to acknowledge that so far, yes, he is the last hope of Mexico because he's the only politician that is able to have the political and democratic legitimacy to enact real change in Mexico. If he fails, I'm afraid to to say that uh, the prospects for Mexico in the in the long run are pretty bleak. That doesn't close, of course, the possibility that new political leaderships will arise. That doesn't close, of course, the possibility that there are some very interesting social movements, such as the one led by Javier Sicilia himself and the Zapatistas and other uh, indigenous movements that are, are a real source of hope for Mexicans. That doesn't close those options. But in terms of institutional politics, probably yes, he's the last chance at least uh, for the foreseeable future. So I think uh, good faith criticism is important for, for that change. Well, on that happy note, Umberto, it's been a real pleasure talking to you on the phone this uh, this morning. I really appreciate your article. It's fantastic. And I'm so glad that we were able to get a summary of the first year of AMLO's, AMLO being in office. Thank you so much for being on this week's show. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for the conversation. 
bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I know Alex likes to get the guest off the line right when I'm reading that tag. I always forget that it's right there. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Maris. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is where did you leave those damn vote totals? Where did you leave those damn vote totals? You can leave your answers to this week. This week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And you can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. And you can email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell tote bag, which totes several hundred votes. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, uh, yeah. My kid's digging in the trash can with a pair of pliers. So hopefully uh, <laughs> nothing bad to the trash Hey. I found a soup can. Hey, put that down, please. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, okay, Daniel F. says, inside Mayor Pete's cute little Hot Wheels lunchbox. <laughs> Doug G. says, the, fo- the vote totals are in Pete's wine cave. Maggie S. says, uh, Ken is probably right. Money and the DNC are friggin' are ringing, ringing damn bells. Time for something radically different. Stop playing. Stop taking their S. Start playing by their rules. Uh, stop playing by their rules. Call, uh, Chris S. says, it's not who votes that counts. It's who counts the votes. Joseph Stalin. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Uh, Adam K says, I can't tell you because it would violate the NDA I signed. Adam C said, we're going to bust them in, but Joe said no. <laughs> Ladio says, Cerebus ate it. Scott W says, in Howard Eats Lunchbox. Jessica P says, in the shadows. Chris R says, in the Penske file. And uh, Jan, F, or Jan H says, with Biden's dementia medication hidden under a bunch of malarkey. Alex will have the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll announce this week's winner on our show tomorrow, Thursday. Let's get to listener feedback because this is really an incredible email we've got and we've received from longtime listener Justin. Justin writes to us at chuckatthisishell.com. Hey, Chuck, solid intro music choices this week, Alex. Very good, Alex. Your recent interview with Martin Arboleda, author of Planetary Mind, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism on Monday, really touched on a topic that has been a concern of mine for a few years now. Aside from all of the random jobs I have performed, my main trade has been a CNC machinist. That's a computer numerically controlled machinist. And I'd like to thank my source in the manufacturing sector for explaining it to me this morning. Justin continues, I've worked on components for medical tools and dental implant implants, ammo reloaders, and solar turbines. My most recent job in the, that field consisted of manufacturing and installing office furniture and features for some big-name clients, some real key players in the destruction and gentrification of neighborhoods and communities around the world. Being a lowly shop worker, I was disgusted with the fact that my labor was used for the expansion of Uber. Microsoft, and even Airbnb. The disgust grew so much that I eventually left, feeling the need to cleanse myself and figure a new way to make an okay living that was easier on my mind. Fast forward to me now, I've been involved in the CAD, Computer-Aided Drafting and Design Certification Program at my local community college. One of my classes, CAD Orientation, would usually have a guest speaker maybe once a week come in and discuss what future lays ahead of us in the mystical and exciting world of computer-aided drawing. So one guest's presentation was a live software demo, and the demo product was a part of a particular machine called the Resiman Bolter 77D. It was highly praised by the presenter, and the class oohed and awed at the 
greatness and efficiency of this machine, championed as the new bot technology to save manpower and speed up more shaft manufacturing. It's basically an underground caterpillar that can drive stakes and wire mesh in a faster motion for a quicker extraction of the Earth's resources. And bam, I'm back in that state of disgust again. Capitalism and the exploitative nature it brings with it is right in front of me. I'm paying for it. I'm paying for it with my mind. I'm paying it for it with my loans. I'm effing paying interest on it. There is no escape from it because this is hell. And just to prove a point even further, here is a link, a YouTube link, to the machine I mentioned. For whatever effing reason, the YouTube publisher decided to set the footage to an instrumental of Simon Gale's Bess, You Are My Woman Now. There's a YouTube link, and I think Alex has or will share it. Have you? Uh, Alex is busy with this kid right now. He will share it later on today. By the way, my answer to this week's question from hell says, Justin, is... I left the vote totals in Nancy Reagan's ass. Finally, Chuck, what's your favorite name to call cops? Your friend, Justin. Good Lord, it's really awful when what we discuss on our show actually takes place in real time in somebody's reality and they show it to us. Justin, I will send you my favorite slur for the police because... That is the very, very least I can do. And I know a lot of you listening right now are in the same situation as Justin. You want to do the right thing, but every time you try, you realize, you recognize how you, like all of us, are complicit contributors to our collective nightmare. See, I told you. This is hell. That's listener feedback, and this is hell. Send us your thoughts, comments, criticisms and suggestions to me here at chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com or facebook them to us or send them to us via twitter alex this is hell office hours are now at a new time we are now holding our weekly meet and greet which is more of a think and drink that takes place at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon in chicago's little india neighborhood that now happens on fridays every friday evening beginning at 6 p.m and going until at least nine now every friday night so join us on fridays every friday night for this is hell office hours at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon here in chicago the bar downstairs from these offices. Finally, we do our show from studios above Carrie's Lounge. There's also a meeting space that is open for anyone in the community or community groups to organize in a neutral setting. Last night, we had Reclaim Chicago doing some work up here. So if you need a space, a neutral space to meet, all you have to do is contact me, Chuck at thisishell.com, Chuck at thisishell.com, and I will connect you with the people who schedule the spaces use up here. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live show, streaming at 10 a.m. AM Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Uh, Samuel Woolley will be, will be on to talk about his book, The Reality Game, how the next wave of technology will break the truth. Mm. Great. <laughs> I think it already did, didn't it? Tune in to tomorrow's live streaming show, 10 a.m. Chicago time. This is hell.com. Listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. Hear all of the answers to this week's question from hell and find out if you have one. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry, thanks to Alex Jerry. Thanks to Umberto Beck for being our guest on this week's show. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell.
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>